0: and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Peter Haywood. FuturePod gathers voices from the international field of futures and foresight. Through a series of interviews, the founders of the field and the emerging leaders share their stories, tools, and experiences. Please visit futurepod.org for further information about this podcast series. Today, our guest is Tyler Mongan. Tyler is an experienced leadership facilitator and neuroscience-based strategic foresight and innovation process architect. He works with executive teams globally to develop results-driven, step-by-step innovation and foresight processes. Tyler is a published biomedical researcher. He attended medical school and has formal training in peak performance, neurofeedback, mindfulness, and strategic foresight and futures. Tyler is the co-founder and president of Haku Global and editor and contributing author of the Foresight Guide. He's also a fellow podcaster hosting the Future Intelligence Leadership Podcast, which I do recommend to FuturePod listeners as it has some great guests and amazing conversations. Welcome to FuturePod, Tyler.
1: Aloha, Peter. Thank you for having me.
0: Great, Tyler. So, first question for the guest, Tyler, is their story. So, what is the Tyler Mongan story? How did you become a member of the Futures and Foresight community?
1: Yeah, so as I reflect back on that story, it's interesting because I never planned on going into the Foresight or even business space. My background and my interest was in medicine. I went to pre med and then did biomedical research. Ended up going into naturopathic medical school in Arizona in the States, and um, which is interesting because naturopathic medicine is a little bit of a divergence away from the re- regular medical field, but fully licensed as medical doctors in um, Arizona. And so I was in year two and a half of medical school, and I thought my, my future was set. I was going to do medicine, become a doctor, work my 20 years or whatever, and then retire. <laughs> I don't know if there were, you know, who had other plans for me. If I just had other plans for myself, but during the second year, we take our our boards, yep, just regular medical boards. And I decided to delay that. I just wasn't feeling ready. I was a little burned out, and I went to Hawaii, of all places.
0: Good place to go when you're burning out.
1: Exactly. I wanted to see what paradise had to offer, so I went there. <laughs> um, I actually worked with a, a Hawaiian healer there, just to kind of experience some different understandings of health and healing, and. And something switched inside me. I remember it was my last day there, and I looked back at the island. I was like, you know, I can live here. And I went back to Arizona to finish medical school, and it just felt wrong. I uh, didn't feel like my future anymore. I would look into the future of where I'd become a doctor, and I just couldn't see it. Yeah, like it just it wasn't available to me. And I said, well, what you know, what am I going to do now? And so I looked into the future again. I said, well, you know, I was going to become a doctor, work my 20 years, and I was going to retire. And I said, well, what if I just retired right now? What would happen? And I said, well. If I retired na- right now, where would I go? Yeah, And I thought, well, I'd go to Paradise and I'd go back to Hawaii. So I just went back to Hawaii and dropped out of medical school. I learned how to surf. And actually, I went to acupuncture school while I was there. That was kind of my transition uh, from medicine into something else and learned a lot of interesting things there. But then I got into, into business and really uh, interested in startup space and started my uh, first company was a media company in Hawaii what was interesting, I think, as related to Foresight is we started a, a print media company at a time where everything was going digital. Mm. So this is around 2008, 2009. And everybody was saying, you know, print is dead, advertising is going digital, everything's going to be online, you're not going to be able to read books or magazines anymore. And me and my business partner were like, well, we're going to start a print magazine company, <laughs> which if you looked into the future, it didn't seem like a great idea, we also realized that as you know, as futures shift in one direction, they they leave gaps, right, and holes. Yep. And we we saw a hole that was going to get you know it wasn't going to get filled because everybody's looking to that digital space. And we said, well, there's a group of people that are going to want print still. So we we started a little newspaper, led into working for a local airlines there called Go Airlines, and we did their in-flight magazine. And then it just led to other publications. And um, I think now it's you know I've been out of that out of that organization since 2012, but it's grown tremendously. I think there's 25 staff and multiple publications. It's moved into the mainland US. But from there, I just getting towards foresight, I, I moved into consulting from that startup space that I was in for a while. And the first consulting firm I worked for was called Smart Sustainability Consulting. We we're really looking at the future of energy and how to make you know Hawaii more sustainable. And our focus was actually on behavior change. And so this really brought in, I think, that that human side of the future and change that I had never really thought about before and the challenges associated with that. And so we were actually working with the Department of Education, Department of Defense, and we were walking them through a process of educating their staff and employees on how to have more energy conservative behaviors within buildings. And we were having these great results. We were you know, reducing energy consumption month by month. Saving some buildings, just one building alone, a hundred thousand dollars a year in costs, wow. which is a significant amount of money, especially when it adds up uh, in multiple buildings. But what we also realized was that you know the higher ups, I guess, had a different vision, and they felt like <laughs> they felt like changing people's behavior was actually too hard. Yeah, and they really wanted to bring that technology component in. They wanted to put on solar panels and use tech. And I think you know there's a lot of that feeling even now today, right? Of that it seems like it's easier to change tech than it is to change behavior.
0: Yeah, change the outside world rather than change the inside world.
1: Yeah, but I was really interested in that because we were seeing we were seeing the change, and we we had processes that were working to create that change. They just took a little bit more upfront investment, and so I, I rolled that in and over to the the business and startup space after working for that consulting company, and really got interested in how to help entrepreneurs look into the future because I was an entrepreneur. And I realized that I had never had any formal training in foresight or, or how to look and see where I was going. I would just have a vision and just go for it, right? But I didn't have a processes or steps or a strategy. So I really wanted to figure out how to combine just my background in, in health and medicine and business and behavior change and create something that would help the startup space.
0: Mm.
1: So me and another guy partnered on this idea. We called it Mind Lab. The idea was to look at, you know, what's the, what does science tell us about looking into the future and goal setting and, and also how can we integrate even like mindfulness practices? I was really interested in that. had uh, done a lot of training in martial arts where we do a lot of meditation and we, we learned how to see the world differently by shifting our, the state of our mind, right? Our, our reference point in our mind and how to anticipate, understand possibilities and look at, look at futures non-linearly as well. So we created this process, and it was just a three-hour methodology that walked individuals or teams from, you know, this idea of like speculating about a future to developing a timeline of the next three months of their future. And we'd have them do things that were a little bit strange at times, uh, maybe some meditation, visualizations, but also walking through what we call like the scientific method, like setting their goals in the future. We would have them ask a question, uh, do some background research test their hypotheses, create hypotheses, draw conclusions. And um, in that process just learning a lot about how people think about the future and where, you know, we fine tuned it over, over several months of traveling around not only the U S but around the world and doing this method. And I happened to be uh, at a conference speaking about our methodology and walking people through some parts of it. And there was a guy in the room who worked for Rolls Royce and he said, Hey, we, you know, we need this at Rolls Royce. I was like, okay, you know, I, what do you need? You know, what is this thing that you need? I don't even know what I'm doing. Really, I've just kind of created this thing that I think works.
0: Yeah, the answer is the Question again?
1: Of course, the answer is yes. So he he went in and he talked to his higher ups, and they wanted to a, a, a test, you know, test it out before they brought me out there. So I I walked him through a scaled down version of what I do, and and had him test it, and they got great results, and they they invited me to come out. I worked with their innovation team for a day and walked them through my process. I didn't know exactly what space the work f- fell into, like if it was strategy or innovation or foresight, but I saw a big need in foresight. and I felt like I was doing more foresight than any of the other things. And that's where I uh, also kind of developed this idea that the work I do was you know, more related to foresight. Mm. I worked with their innovation team and then I got brought in to work with their uh, executive team and do some foresight work with them. And I, at that point, I really still didn't know what foresight was. Uh, what that what the field was at all? I wasn't uh, experienced in it. Although a good friend of mine, John Sweeney, had his uh, PhD in foresight or was working on it, and I didn't quite know what he did, but I know he it was a legitimate thing. And so I went and worked with their executive team. I walked them through my process, and I think the most interesting thing about well, there's a couple interesting things about that experience, but one of them was they wanted to look 25 years into the future, and you know, using my methodology to help them do that, and. As we went through the process, I think they quickly realized that they could only comfortably look nine months to 18 months into the future. And I think what was interesting to me was that I think in the past, they felt like they could look 25 years into the future, and they had confidence about that. And something had changed. This was back in around 2015, 2016. And I, I really then got interested in foresight space from there. And wanted to see like what, you know, what is this foresight space all about? So I started to attend conferences. Um, I worked or I went and did some training with the uh, Manchester Institute of Innovation Innovation Research yep. with Raphael Popper and learned, you know, just some methodologies of foresight and how that the foresight, at least from an academic and even professional perspective, really works and how my work was related to it. Um, at the same time, you know, I was still very interested in like neuroscience and mindfulness. And I was attending a conference on the Science of Consciousness Conference, and uh, brings together hardcore physicists and philosophers, medical professionals, and they really ask this question of like, what is consciousness and what is the science and data around it? And one of the things that I picked up there was this concept called the global neuronal workspace. And it's really this framework of how the brain deals with uncertainty and complexity in the future. And I thought there was something really interesting there. So I spent the past three years really diving into that framework um, speaking to people about it, trying to understand it and how it can be applied to leadership and foresight. And that's kind of where I'm at now with it.
0: Let's talk about question two. In question two, I asked the guests to explain a framework or, or a concept that they think is you know central to the work they do or their practice. I'd, I'd love to know what what you want to talk about?
1: Yeah. So for me, I've used quite a few different methodologies. The one that we're developing right now, I think, is the one I'm most interested in. We call it the six pillars of future intelligence. And the basic idea is we we really think that just like there's an emotional intelligence, a cognitive intelligence, there is a future intelligence. It has neural correlations. You know, there's different parts of the brain that light up when we imagine futures or we look at the past. There's different. Parts of the brain that are used for actually creating like physical maps of our, our world, like how we navigate the world. And all these do seem to relate to foresight in different ways. And as I was mentioning earlier, this idea of the global neuronal workspace, it's actually developed by a man named Bernard Bars. And in his model, he has this idea of the, the contents of consciousness right, and how we can access that. This information that we need to, you know, to handle uncertainty, complexity, exponential change, to develop strategies, foresight, innovation. He links it to this idea of a blackboard. And he says there's this blackboard of our consciousness. And all this information just kind of jumps in there, right, depending on the access we give it. Mm. Then from that, this image or this future frame just emerges. So if that theory is true, then what we want to do is we want to make sure that we have access to uh, the best content right, for this workspace or this blackboard of the brain. And we want to do it consciously if we can so that we're you know, creating conscious futures as opposed to unconscious futures. And so how can we do that, right? So we looked at um, his model and his model basically has, he has five contents of consciousness. We call the six pillars because we think the first pillar before any of this even starts is to create the right state. You can say it's the right mindset or you can say the right physiological state in the body. We're looking at ways that you can actually measure this to show that the brain is like in an optimal state to be thinking about the future, or a group of brains are in the right state as well, and figuring out ways how we could even test that. But we think that if you get the brain and the body in the right state, then we get access to better content, more optimal content for thinking. And part of this moving into the right state relates to, of course, um, you know, enhancing your cognitive function, you know, move, moving your brain waves into certain types of waves that you want. One of the interesting things we found out is that it, although we we link it a lot to neuroscience, a lot of our work, too, also revolves around heart science. There is this work uh, done by a group in California called HeartMath. They've done a lot of research around the heart. And one of the interesting things they found out is that the, the heart has a huge impact on the state of the brain, right? And the brain and the heart are communicating a lot of information to each other, uh, really that link between that cognitive and emotional intelligence. And so in a lot of our work, for example, we might have people do something simple like focus on the heartbeat for two or three minutes. And that's something that they feel a little bit weird or strange doing at first, but they they do feel a shift or a change in their physiology and also in the ideas or what they think about, not only individually, but collectively when they do these things. So first part of it is creating that right context of this kind of framework we have. And then the second, or I guess the second through the fifth or the six pillars all revolve around the right content of the brain. And there's the five areas that Barr identified and it makes a lot of sense, right? It's like the past, the present, the future. Those are three of the areas, which is our traditional kind of understanding of our orientation to time, right? Are you more past focused, present focused, or future focused? But then what's interesting is there's two other areas of content that are important in this framework. And one of them is the focus or attention. We're actually giving something. It could be a certain future or a certain thing in the past. And then also there is a component of the values or evaluation process that we're using that's influencing this overall kind of framework uh, or, you know, workspace of the brain to decide what's, you know, what's value. And of course there's a lot of interplay between these ideas too, right? What you f- mm. what you focus on, typically you're, you're telling your brain is valuable or what you value you tend to focus on, but they also are distinct as well. And there's different parts of the brain, different systems of the brain um, that are deciding what, you know, how we evaluate or, or create values. So I think what's interesting about this methodology is that, it says, yeah, there's the past, present, and future are important, uh, understanding our biases, the mental models we have, you know, looking at what we're perceiving in the moment, what we're sensing in the moment, uh, what type of information is available to us in the present, and also doing the anticipation, scenario development, speculation for the future. But also we need to be aware of and bring in, in a very conscious way, this idea of focus and values.
0: In that, model where does the notion of intuition or the, the sort of leap of faith you know what you did when you imagined yourself retired <laughs> and therefore where would i go i mean within because that as you said was a future was a future driven conscious idea i mean you did say that when you returned to arizona it didn't feel right it didn't feel mm-hmm. as though you wanted to be there can you take the model and turn it back on your own experience, just, again, for the listener's benefit, to yeah. kind of explain? Because yep. you can do future as a very, if I describe it, rational, logic, mm.
1: process-driven.
0: Mm-hmm. And then we both know that there's also that notion of the creative, mm. the kind of leap of faith aspect. How does that also fit in there?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great question, and it's, I think, a good way to really frame that, you know, I think, a healthy tension between that kind of gut feeling versus the logical side. Just to kind of follow up on that, and then I'll talk about the, my past a little bit more. But, you know, I think working with executive teams, what I saw was there was a lot of the, the logic kind of cognitive processes and steps that they really got into. And they were a little hesitant at first of more that feeling intuitive side. Mm. But I think once they went there, they really grasped the value of it, you know, even though maybe they couldn't communicate that right away. And what they had realized is that They had in the past gotten a lot of cognitive buy-in on a a future. Let's say, yeah, it makes rational sense. Uh, Look at the data, right? But they hadn't they hadn't really gotten to the point where they had a an emotional buy-in to that future. So they would walk away like, let's have another meeting right about it, versus let's go do it. When I worked with Rolls Royce, one of the things they came back and said, you know, well, even even after that day long session, they said we're really going to go do this. It's actually a little bit scary. And then a few months they followed up with me and said. "Um, we implemented faster than we've ever implemented these ideas before. So that was really interesting to see that. And I think for myself, going back to that that experience of kind of that shift point for me, moving more from the past into the future than moving from I'd say like an unknown future and just moving emer- what's emerging. You know, when I was in medical school, I was much more driven by the past. You know, my father was a doctor, so I felt like that's what I was supposed to become. Um, look at the nine years I had spent getting to this point to become a doctor.
0: Yeah, the sunk cost.
1: Yep. Yeah, exactly. Sunk costs. So the logical side, of course, would have been to just continue being going to medical school, right? I mean, financially, uh, just like time commitment wise, so many good reasons to stay in medical school at this point. Two and a half years in and just it didn't fit well in my background. And so if I looked at it logically, I guess by bias too, right? And also the mental models I had. It was very much heavily weighted by the past. If I use this kind of framework that I have, and in the present though something felt wrong, and when I looked into the future, it wasn't there anymore. Mm-hmm. Right, so I had to actually rely a lot on um, my focus and values. I think in that moment, mm-hmm. which I think is where a lot of uh, leaders and companies find themselves today. Right, where the past isn't working anymore, the future is so uncertain and unknown. Um, what can we fall back on? That's right. And that's where the focus and values comes in. That's where the brain uh, has that capacity. Um, I think it was actually John Sweeney, one of the podcasts I did with him, and he talked a lot about how when mission and vision fails, where do you fall back onto? You fall back on the values, right? And if you have strong values as an individual or a team, you can keep moving forward. And then where do you put your focus? You know, are you focusing on the, uh, Are you focusing on that uncertainty, putting too much attention there? Or are you focusing on something else that's allowing you to keep moving forward? And so for me, I, I just, I focused on, you know, in that moment, I started to focus on my values, right? What are my, what are my core values that are really moving me into the future? And I think for me, it was, I think the excitement of the unknown was one of them. And uh, even though I didn't, ha- I, I kind of always had that as a value. I also really valued freedom a lot. I think there was a part of me that that realized there was a lot of freedom in being able to say no to a, um, a future that was so weighted by my past and shift directions, even though it seemed so uh, logically incorrect. And even to say yes to that freedom of following your, you know, that gut feeling or intuition and seeing what happens. I think there's a lot of value in that, um, especially when we deal with foresights and futures. I think a lot of times you, get caught, you can get caught up into creating you know, the most likely scenarios, what's most probable. And then you default to that because it's easy to explain, it seems safe, but then, but there's a party that feels like it's maybe not quite right or there's something else available and you're not willing to allow that to emerge.
0: Hmm. Sahail, in talks about a lot of organizations have an owned and a disowned future. Mm -hmm. And they often are in a situation where they, as an organization have a future that they know they can talk about they can plan for they can create but there's another future that is kind of no one is game to talk about it it's and it's and mm, it's mm-hmm. it's actually moving into interrogate that idea that organisation is that something that you don't want to become is that something that in fact you are becoming or is that a thing that you want to become that a bit like you wanted to become a surfer it's kind of an idea that won't go away but you can't talk about it <laughs>
1: Yeah, it reminds me a lot of you know how different cultures approach things too. And my wife is Japanese, and so in Japanese cultures, there's a lot of things you just don't talk about. Yeah. It's just part of their culture. And I think, but when you allow a space for people to talk about those things they're not usually allowed to talk about, it's so it's so freeing for them. Mm. And I think there's a lot of uh, opportunity. I think in the foresight space to be able to talk about futures that we don't talk about, yeah. and figure out how to create the right space for that, the right context that allows that to emerge.
0: That's great, Tyler. Thanks. Third question, the one about the emerging future around you, this is where you stop talking about the process and you start talking about the content. So this is as you make sense of the emerging futures around you, what are the things that particularly you are paying attention to? And know, you know, what are the things that excite you and possibly what are the things that actually scare you or concern you as Tyler Mongan human being, how are you sense making the emerging futures around you?
1: Yeah, I think you know, it's really interesting like thinking about that question, because for me I've always I've kind of always been this low tech person, at least at heart, but there's always this interest in like high tech mm. as well. So for example, I was the last person out of my friends to get a cell phone because I just resisted that so much. But at the same time, I was the, the first one of my friends to have a laptop computer before most people even had a, a regular PC. Yep. So this is this, this weird dichotomy I feel inside myself of, of wanting to be like super high tech and also super low tech at the same time. That tends to be a focal point for me. You know, what is the latest and greatest in technology? Where can it go? Um, but then also what's the impact on the, the low-tech human aspects of ourself? And so I think the things that really you know are interesting to me, I guess, would be this that, that dichotomy. And I call it like a high-tech versus a high-touch future. There's synergy in it, and there's also tension between it. For example, I see digital currency. I'm, I'm fascinated by that just because of how fast it moves, uh, what it could create, the dangers in it as well. And also realizing, like talking to my father today about it, um, who knows nothing about it. And he doesn't need to know anything about it for him, right? It's just not part of his future at all. And then also seeing how how much I love physical money. <laughs> like I love touching money. For me, at least, it's really strange to think about how we're in this point where I could have kids that in the future, they might not have any, there might not be real dollars for them. There mm-hmm. might not be paper money in that future. And so I'm kind of, I feel like I'm always in between that. And also the thing is how much uh, information I consume on a daily basis and there's out there in the world um, and how how to make sense of it right how to filter it properly and and also what is it doing to our brains you know i know that i think like the amount of information i probably consume in one year is probably more than maybe my great grandfather consumed in his entire life it's a different type of information we're just able to have so much and we're constantly upgrading our technology and computers but my big concern is, are we upgrading our, our minds, our consciousness, our ability to be human? And so I see this tension a lot, and that's kind of where I focus a lot. And so the future for me is um, it's high tech and it's high touch. And I'm trying to figure out how to balance both of those in my own personal life. I have, for example, a strong desire right now to buy a piece of land and, and be on a farm. But at the same time, I find it interesting that the technology we have available could allow me to do that at the same time. So it's trying to look into the future and And I think look, like I would like to be able to look past all the risks I see. It reminds me of um, in surfing. You know, one of the the worst things you can do in surfing is to, when you're actually surfing a wave, is to look at other people. Because if you look at other people, you're probably going to hit them. Because your board wants to go where your eyes are looking. And so the key is you have to like look past them. These are the dangers in the water. You have to look past them. You have to see them and recognize they're there. But you have to look like through them or past them, really. So you avoid them just effortlessly, right? Because you don't have you don't have time to focus on each one too much, and you really need to focus on where the where the hole is. So where is a gap in the future? And so I have to remind myself to constantly look look for that gap in the future, so I don't get stuck in those those risks that I see with let's say technology or the rat the speed uh, that things are moving. Personally, I want to keep technology still a tool for my life, and I really want to work hard to do that and not become tool of technology.
0: Mm. I mean, there's a paradox, obviously, in looking past risk. Yes. Which is that sometimes we should be paying attention to risk and changing direction. Yes. And I can't help but listen to your your description of how you sense make the future for yourself. And I am transported to someone and try to imagine that I'm someone in a sub-Saharan Africa or um, mm. or the East, And is the future that you're imagining for yourself one that is universal around the planet or is it singular to people in first world countries?
1: Mm, that's a, that's a great question. Yeah. I, th- I mean, I would like to think it's, it's you know possible for everyone. The challenge of course is where their starting point is in life and what kind of resources they have available to them. And, you know, it's hard to look past the risk when you need your water sources mm. is uh, contaminated. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a great that kind of a stumps me a bit of how, how do I take this thinking and and make it relatable to somebody in a place that doesn't have the same opportunity that I have, you know, mm. and I, I, it's interesting because I've realized too for myself, you know, I'm, I'm a white male born in America. My parents are still married. I have siblings and good friends. It's, I went to college and in, in graduate school. So I'm, I'm definitely in the, you know, the upper, even, I don't know, 1% of the world, you know, even though maybe financially I'm not, but at least as far as the opportunities I could have access to. And I realize. I spent the past, I'd say about six years traveling around the world and going to different countries for work. And, you know, I you know, I do realize that there are vast differences in, in access. And I think that's maybe that's one of the things that I think should be highlighted. And even to me, is that um, yes, there is all this like technology and change, there's all these great resources, but not everybody has equal access to those. Mm. And you know, how do how do we make futures and Re- foresight relevant to those people who don't have access, who, who really are, their, their time frame is like the next hour, right? Where am I going to have drinking water or not? Um, am I going to have access to a medical doctor in the next week if I need it? Whereas all those things are taken care of for me. And so I think the challenge, I mean, at least when I'm in my work, that idea of context, I think is so important because even it's really the idea is when people get put into these survival modes. The types of futures they can think about is very different. Yeah. And so how do you you know get people out of that survival mode long enough where they can see a different type of future, but then also allow that to meet the realities of where they're at today?
0: The studies would say that as people are in constrained life circumstances, they actually find it harder and harder to imagine the future being different. Yes. If you like it, future sense or future time perspective is foreshortened if people suffer you know, real distress, physical distress, you know, emotional distress. Mm. And yet the paradox in there, of course, is the future is open. That at a very point that a person lacks hope of change, Mm -hmm. the future can, you know, difficult, but if you can bring enough resource and I suppose encouragement and motivation to the person, that it's possible to change your future. Mm. Again, the paradox for me, Tyler, is that as we become comfortable and if you like, perhaps we can look past the risks. There are other people who need to be very foresightful in order to create the possibility to to choose and create and innovate.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. It is an interesting struggle in my mind as well. I mean, I know, for example, when it comes to climate change, for example, even, and I remember talking to someone from Greenpeace years ago, and they were working on, I think, around uh, whaling. I think they were stopping uh, whaling, especially in Japan area. And they had the idea of, we need help fighting against this. And my mind was interested in like, how do we explore a future where we don't have to fight against it, but we build a future where that whaling isn't necessary? And what does that look like? Right. So um, it's interesting for me of like, how do I shift my mindset of focusing on the conflict or the struggle? And then can I see and live towards a future where that the struggle doesn't need to exist anymore? But I think it's still, you know, I think it's still really idealized, and also probably coming from the, you know, the, the background that I have and the opportunities I've been accessed to.
0: Okay. Fourth question is the communication question. I'm interested to to know how you uh, answer this one, which is the. How do you explain what it is you do to people who don't necessarily understand what it is you do?
1: I'd say right now, uh, my focus is on making uh, leaderships more intelligent about the future. Good. You know, I think a lot of my work, if I dive deeper into it, revolves around creating that the right uh, the right context for individuals or teams, so they can move into more coherent states. I mean, that would be. You know, I think the foundation of my work really is about, although it might uh, look like other things, um, I might use tools and practices to get them there. But my idea is if you get into, if I can get a team or an individual into a coherent state and we can, you know, look at different brain waves or different physiological measures, but also just from a feeling perspective, they get access to the best content. And when they do that, uh, they, if they look into the future, they're hopefully going to be uh, developing, you know, speculating, or anticipating uh, the you know the best possible future for them or their organization. Mm-hmm. And um, if, if I can do that, then I think all my work's kind of done. Basically, get them into that state, have them ask the right questions about the future, and the information is just going to emerge out of them. So one of the things I I tell an executive team is, look, you have uh, you have all the information you need inside you already. My job is to help you uh, help pull it out of you, make it evident, and then help you integrate it into ways that create the future.
0: I might just get you to unpack a bit of that. When you talk about groups having coherence, Mm -hmm. particularly leadership groups, if I was to come in and look at a group or if I was to come in and look at two groups um, and I was to see both a coherent group and an incoherent group, what would I be noticing?
1: Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so what what I've noticed personally, I mean, because uh, right now the companies don't pay us yet to actually hook them up to um, technology to monitor things (laughs) because that's what I'd love to do in the future. I'd love to have them hooked up to... uh, some HRV monitors and brainwave monitors so we can actually uh, measure the coherence. Backpedaling a little bit, some studies they did at, I think it was at Harvard, they looked at this idea of uh, can, I don't know if you've seen the study, but it's the idea of can leaderless groups uh, allow a leader just to naturally emerge? Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of a small study, but they took a group of uh, three people and they hooked them up to, a, to brainwave monitors. And they wanted to see what happened if they interacted and like, tried to solve a problem together and what they found out was that um, the person who kind of emerged as a leader, both defined by the group itself and externally by uh, like an observer group, was the one who actually created more brainwave coherence between their brain and the other person's brain. And what that means is when we see like coherent brainwaves, they actually start to move. They don't move like exactly the same waves, but they move in synchrony, synchronous wave pattern. And so what that, that was really fascinating to me. It was like, wow, we sh- we're showing that, A leader actually makes brainwaves more coherent, maybe more so with themselves than, but it also could be that if you make people's brainwaves more coherent just by doing some practice, they might naturally feel like you're the leader in the room. And so, kind of taking that idea, um, I started to play with different practices, right, Um, that could increase coherence. So, having, um, you can do listening practices, you can actually have teams uh, sing together can do like heartbeat focus, so all these little things. Now, the trick is, is really integrating that into a process or framework. So they don't, it's like the scene together is not the thing they're paying you for, right? So you need to integrate into a practice or a process that also explains why we're doing it, shows how it's moving them towards their results. And so you get buy-in. And once they do these little things over time, what you start to see is you start to, you start to see people slow down. You see kind of that natural hierarchy that's in a, it's in a group that's been established kind of start to fade away. And so people who don't, don't normally talk start to talk more. You see more like collaborative uh, as opposed to competitive mm-hmm. brainstorming that's happening. You see, I've had people walk in the room and said, well, is this a meditation class? Like they, they, they felt like something was different going on in the room. And I was like, no, we're like, we're doing foresight work here. <laughs> what we also maybe see sometimes is you'll see resistance too. So you'll see who doesn't want to move into a coherent state with a group, and that's typically actually the one who's typically been in charge. Because when you when you start to establish a more physiological coherence within groups, they actually become more physically equal. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about this idea of like having a diversity in groups, when you move them physiologically into the same states, you kind of neutralize a lot of that diversity, but also hierarchies in there. But in, I think in a healthy way too, right? Where people actually feel free to share all their information that's inside of them, but they don't feel suppressed because of their diversity or because of the hierarchy.
0: Again, I'm going to ask you to pause this idea of leadership because I want to give you a couple more words. I'm going to ask you to talk about leader, influencer, even coach or facilitator. Mm -hmm. But I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm imagining when you're talking about leadership, it's not necessarily the person who's in charge.
1: Yeah, I think that's very important. I think it's very important for foresight because – A lot of times, whoever has that uh, highest badge, the highest ranking, more than often really has a huge impact on the decision-making process, on what futures you're going to move towards. And you don't want to neutralize that person. Uh, What you want to do is bring everybody else up to that level. But when you do that, like you're saying, is that um, the leader in the room might not be that person with the highest ranking anymore, with the title anymore, because your physiology knows it, even if you don't know it. That's kind of something that's, I think, still you know being researched. I think it's something that you learn how to sense, especially like from my martial arts training. You can you can sense when when someone has the upper hand, not just physically, but uh, mindset wise. And I think with my work, what I've seen is that the leader can really be anybody in the room at any point in time, and it can it can shift. It really is a decentralized leadership when you move into more coherent states, because the person who needs to lead in the moment they lead, and then. When that moment's gone it, it moves to somebody else right it's whoever's creating more coherence within that group the other bodies want to move or brother other brains want to move in that direction they, they like i think we we naturally want more coherence it's more efficient um we have access to more information in our brain we have more power and energy active in our brains we have more like uh, connections within the brain not only locally but also like long distance connections too and so one of my philosophies myself is like I was saying earlier if i set the right context and i create coherence um then in some way i become the leader in the room but i create a space where other leaders can naturally emerge right and they feel safe to emerge um and i think that would be the real the real win that i want to create and when that happens i think and you and then sustaining that that context for the team so that it can have this nice flow we can have that constant emergence of new ideas but then the right futures can really emerge and the futures that I, what I like to call is I call them coherent futures. Like when we can find these futures that we're all really coherent with, we're way more likely to achieve them.
0: Cool. Thanks, Tom. We're at the last question, which is the open question. So is there something... That you haven't had a chance to talk to, or you want to leave with, or you'd like to just um, discuss.
1: Yeah, I think you know, with the foresight work that I've done, you know, being at conferences and around the foresight community in general, and doing the podcast, I think one of the key things for me is to to really stress, I think, the importance of figuring out, you know, how how do you create the right context for your foresight work. And, and really looking at the neuroscience or the, the physiology, the state of the group, and how can you integrate some technique or process in there to, to move people into the right the right state for whatever you're trying to achieve. I really see that missing in the foresight process. I mean, I see that missing in a lot of processes within the business <laughs> yes, world. Yes, you know, right. I, I like a little, like, I, it's a quick diagram I like to put up where it's just basically, you know, we, we typically think that we, um, we get a team together and we go through a process and we get a result, right? And that's it, right? Whether it be a foresight process, innovation, strategy, get the team together, go through the process, get a result. And I want to say, that's that's great. Um, but what happens if we get the team together and we get everybody in the right state, the right mindset, the right physiology, the coherent state, whatever it is that you think is best, and then go through the process? What types of results will we get? And I think we'll get better results. And, so I, and I know this is in part of the foresight literature that, the cognitive intelligence to, and even I think the emotional intelligence to have the capacity and capability to think about the future. We talk about that in foresight literature, but then where is it really being implemented and how is it being implemented? I think there needs to be some more work around that. And I think that could be a unique offering that would really shift, could shift foresight in the foresight world into a different bracket of
0: importance. That's a tricky one, as you know, because from an organization, when you are spending organization money, people are comfortable with talking about, tell me about what the process looks like. You almost, mm. If you tell me what the process is, what the thing, and they think, of course, as process as the thing. And what you're describing is, no, no, the thing isn't the process. The process emerged from the state. Yes. We build the state, then the process emerges is the one you want. But of course, you can imagine an organisation is being very uncomfortable by simply saying, "What's the state you're going to build for us?" <laughs> and the answer, yep. the answer is going to be, "You don't know. You don't know." Yeah, it, you know,
1: it's interesting. It, it goes back. I think my, my like role or example is to martial arts, and in martial arts, you might learn how to use your arms in a certain way to throw a punch. Say like in boxing, I guess punches would be more relevant to people. And so, you know, you you throw a punch. And, and everybody could throw that punch the same way. It could look the same, same, the same process, really. But there's something else behind it. When my teacher throws a punch, it's very different than when I throw it. And what is that something else? Well, it's actually the state that he's in when he does that. He has a huge impact. Um, one of my martial arts instructors did a really cool project where he hooked himself up to lights right, on his body. He would put these little LED lights on different parts of his body so you could visually track his movements. And then he did a long exposure camera. And he filmed himself doing different martial arts forms and movements, and then he would do the same form, but he would change his state. Like he would get really angry and do the form. Uh, he would get really sad and do the form. He would feel like elated, try to feel like really happy and do the form. Uh, he'd feel really calm and do the form. And if you looked at the form, the form, the the imagery that came out of that was very different based on the state he was in. You know, he was doing the same movements, but the movements were getting being you know a little bit different. Because of the state and so I think there's something to that you know how you know it, we want like you said we want to focus on the process and the movement the moving parts to get the result but I really think if you get into the right state of course you still need the process you need the framework there but if you get in the right state that's really going to drive what emerges from that process
0: mm. the thing that struck me when you talked about the person who throws a punch is that it's almost this notion of balance and what comes after the punch. In other words, if, mm, you, mm-hmm. if, if you throw a punch and you haven't considered what follows the punch, mm-hmm. and that to me is the foresight point. Yes. Because it's not the action. That's not, that's not the foresight. The foresight is why the action and then what after the action. If you haven't thought through the next step and the next step.
1: Mm, yes.
0: And that's the thing I think that is called flow state is that you almost seem to have the next step anticipated before you do it.
1: Right. I think, I think that's a great, I mean, we do, we are moving to the working with flow state. We do think that's important concept, you know, cause you want people to be, like you said, kind of flowing. So they're, like you said, doing the process and anticipating the, the future at the same time. Cause so that's what the brain really, I think is designed to be able to do in the martial arts setting. You, you, like you said, you have to be able to anticipate what's, you know, what's the, you know, what is this next movement or this movement going to create? And then what's next after that and next after that. And, you might have to be able to to see many steps, you know, into the future, but also be able to anticipate what else could happen yeah. too. Yep. Right. And so, it's I think one of the things too is the work around future intelligence, which we think is I think a next I think it's a really next important step for leadership. Is it's not so much about it's not so much about um, what do we think is going to emerge. It's more about you know what happens when it emerges. Are we going to be ready for that? Can we you know how well can we adapt and, and change and be resilient? And then also be anticipating what's next from there.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the future intelligence leadership podcast? Because you yeah. you are curating them in a specific way.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: <laughs> and I do encourage people to actually have a listen because they are fascinating. But but you are trying to do something with those, and without giving away too much of your magic, what is it you're actually trying to do with those yeah. podcasts?
1: Yeah. So you know, what we're really trying to do is just create a, that space for a dialogue to emerge, and so we we typically ask this key question of how can leadership be more intelligent about the future and then we see what what emerges from there and so it's it's not so much about the guest themselves it's not even so much about what the fu- the future it's really about what what can what can emerge in the space between these two three different brains and from their experience and also their understanding of the future their values their focus and what what types of ideas emerge from that space and so we like to bring on guests maybe even don't talk about foresight or leadership at all. So for example, we've had neuroscientists on, we've had uh, biomedical researchers who work on placebo. We've had people who are working tangentially in the leadership or foresight space, but not directly. And just seeing, seeing what comes out of it. And so what, what we're really trying to do too is see how whatever emerges, does it really also align with our, our framework to around you know, those, those five contents of consciousness? Mm. Can it fit in? you know, without trying to stuff it in there too much. But is there is there wisdom and practical tools that actually emerge to, to help support that framework?
0: Cool. Well, I do recommend that people have it if they can have a listen. I think it's a terrific series. It's been terrific fun. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed our chance to have a chat. Thanks for taking some time out to talk to the FuturePod community.
1: Thank you, Peter. I really uh, enjoyed being here and appreciate your your time and wisdom and insights as well.
0: This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.